This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sephora stores are everywhere you are. So just pop in when you need a brown lip to match your 90s playlist. A confidence boost before your interview? Or a last-minute gift for mom's birthday. There's always a Sephora near you. Just pop in. Use our store locator to find your local Sephora or Sephora at Kohl's. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. My name is Marie Leconte and as you may know if you follow me on social media, I'm obsessed with fashion. Does this mean I've made my life a living hell by deciding to work in politics? Yes. Yes, it does. This is why I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined today by Derek Guy, another Twitter addict who despairs at the way politicians dress, among other things. You may know him better as Die Workwear, or maybe just as the menswear guy. Derek has been a fashion blogger and writer for over a decade, and recently became famous online for his long threads on all things clothing. I'm really delighted that he's agreed to have a chat. Hi, Derek. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. So... Why did you decide to start posting about the clothing of American male politicians? Like, what made you look at that hornet's nest and think, sure, I'm going to stick my finger in that? <laughs> I, um, I mean, I don't know when I quote unquote started. I think it's mostly when people started noticing my threads. I think I've been commenting on it for a while, just as everybody has. I, I don't think that it's that unique, especially when Trump was president. There was a lot of discussion about his clothes. Also, same as Obama. I think people talk about how politicians dress, not, you know, too frequently, but they, they do talk about it. And I was like everybody else. It just so happens that my threads somehow got picked up by the algorithm and became popular on Twitter. And so why do you think politicians in America and elsewhere tend to dress so poorly? Is it just the case that nerdy people tend to not massively care about the way they dress? Or do you think there's something more to it? Well, for one, I want to stress that I only talk about men's clothing. I don't talk about women's wear. It's, women's wear is not my area. But for menswear, I think it's actually, to dress well and stylishly is actually kind of difficult in today's age because it's hard to find quality clothes and it's hard to find information to figure out what works on you. A lot of the work that would have been previously done by a sales associate, let's say 75 years ago, or by a tailor 100 years ago, all of that work is now being put on the shoulders of the customer. So customers now have to figure out whether something fits, what suits them, how to dress for certain environments. And the market is more crowded than ever before. There are just a million options. So it's reasonable that many people struggle to put together not only an outfit, but like a whole wardrobe and know what fits them, how to wear things to certain events and certain occasions. So I don't think politicians are unique in that regard. It's just, it takes a lot of effort nowadays to figure out how to dress well. To look at this the other way for a second, like why do you think politicians should dress better? I don't actually think it matters that much. I got to be honest. I know I've kind of developed a reputation online as criticizing the way not only just politicians, but the way certain famous figures dress. But I also strongly believe that people shouldn't be judged on their, not only on their dress, but by their appearance. So I think it's important to recognize that 
you may be judged by your dress and your appearance, but you should never judge others. And those are, to me, those are two separate acts. So when you try to figure out how to put together a wardrobe, you should think that, you know, in certain situations, it may matter that I dress a certain way because it may impact my life. I think that's reasonable, but it's it's never good to judge other people based on their dress. And in that sense, I don't think anyone should vote for a politician because they're trustable. I mean, that's such a superficial dimension of clothing. However, politicians should consider how their dress affects the election cycle. So in the US, for example, sometimes a politician's choice of attire, especially during campaign season, can just suck important airtime. You know, I'm thinking of a in the 2016 election in the U.S., when Marco Rubio stepped out and he was wearing these um, Cuban-heeled side Oh, yeah, boots. I remember, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I thought they were actually kind of cool boots, but the fact that he chose those ended up taking like a week worth of <laughs> discourse. And during a hotly contested primary, during an election cycle where there's only so much time to you know, to get your message out. I think it's a shame that then you lose a week's worth of messaging because of this one, you know, one essentially superficial thing. I don't think voters necessarily vote based on a politician's dress, nor do I think they should. But I do think that when a politician makes certain dress decisions, it can take up needless airtime. And that's why they should pay attention to dress because it can affect what ends up, you know, catching headlines. So I was quite struck by something you wrote in Politico, kind of on that topic. So you said that politicians should wear button-down shirts on the campaign trail because they're very American. So as you wrote, I quote, wearing one is a sign of patriotism and demonstrates an understanding of our shared cultural history. So to what extent do you think normal people pay attention to that stuff? Or like, <laughs> do, do they get influenced by it on some level, even if they don't like necessarily know the specific history of a garment? No, I don't think most people know the difference. <laughs> so in, in the U.S., as, as listeners may know, the button-down collar refers to the collar leaf, the collar points that button down onto the shirt. It doesn't refer to the buttons on the placket. That's sometimes referred to as a button-down, but it's really a button-up. That's a button-up shirt. But a button-down is the collar that buttons down to the shirt. That's a historically a, a British invention. British polo players wore it, but it was popularized in the U.S. through Brooks Brothers, who took it, put it on to... At the time, they were pullover shirts, but later on became a coat front shirt and it became a signature of American style. Do I think not even most, but even 2% of the population knows that? No, I, very few people mm. know that. I was speaking more of it's challenging for politicians to figure out how to dress on the campaign trail nowadays because in the 60s or 70s, it was still somewhat common for a politician to campaign in a coat and tie. And over time, the coat and tie in my lifetime has moved to just the the tie and the dress shirt, and now it's just the dress shirt. And now sometimes it's not even the dress shirt, it's a variety of things. Uh, Ron DeSantis, who's a politician right now campaigning for the U.S. presidency or the nomination, the Republican nomination for the U.S. US presidency, he campaigns in a fishing shirt, for example. Many politicians campaign in, you know, sweaters and all sorts of things. And they're essentially trying to ride this very fine line between looking like a leader, someone who knows what they're talking about, but also relatable. And that can mean many different things, depending on where you are in the United States, who you're speaking in front of, what is the environment. And I think the advantage with the button-down collar really mostly is that I do think it looks a little bit more casual, even to the kind of casual eye. And I also think most importantly, when you're wearing a button-down collar, the collar stands up. 
and it doesn't splay out the way that a spread collar would. But do I think that, you know, some people really, do they recognize that kind of Brooks Brothers history? No. Yeah, no, it's definitely a problem we have in Britain as well. I think whenever politicians here try to do casual clothing, like I look like a normal human, this is just me, you know, it's <laughs> yeah, always really yeah. bad. And yeah, you want to be like, just wear a suit. It's fine. It's fine. I completely agree. I, I think they would look more authoritative and aesthetically it would look better because no one believes that these people are the same as the working. I mean, none of the, none of, very few of them have even that kind of working class background. So just just wear a suit and just be a politician, you know? So. And it's fine, yeah. So you once said in an interview that my politics means that I target people on the right. Why is it so important for you to go for that angle? Because, you know, you, you could argue that you could just attack them for their politics. So what's the point of going after the way they dress? And what's the relationship, I guess, like, between reactionary politics and the way its advocates dress themselves? So on Twitter, I mainly talk about clothing. 99% of my tweets are about clothing. So... I'll often do a thread about how to wear something and it'll be something like why a very slim suit doesn't always work on certain guys or how to wear a certain items and so forth. And in order to do this, I try to pull examples of what works and what doesn't work. But the thing is, is that clothing is very different from other types of cultural consumption. So for example, I can critique your taste in films. I can critique your taste in books or music. But if I critique your clothing, especially as it's being worn on you, it is a much more personal attack. Clothing sits on our body. It's, it's on our skin. It, it shapes how we appear. If I critique your taste in clothing, I'm essentially attacking your appearance. It's, it's just like if I was criticizing your face. I never want to pull photos of a random person and say, oh, this this outfit looks bad. <laughs> yeah. Because that's that's like an insane thing to do, right? Especially now, now that I have this large audience on Twitter. But if I have to illustrate a point, then a body has to be underneath the clothes. And I admit that I'm, you know, I have progressive politics. So I'm a little bit more likely to pull a photo of Matt Gates, who's a Republican politician in the US, than I am to pull a photo of a random person. So some people feel that my view of clothes is affected by my politics, and I don't think that's fair. But it is true that it, when I'm pulling photos to illustrate what is a good outfit or bad outfit, I'm more likely to pull someone that I don't have very much sympathy for. And that tends to be, in my view, and I'm sure this is going to be a judgment call depending on, you know, who's listening. But in my view, I tend to pull people on what I consider to be the far right in the U.S. One of the things that I really dislike is the respectability of dress, the idea of respectability in clothing, the idea that someone's character can be inferred from their dress. It really bothers me because that shapes how we we think that people should be treated and who's allowed to participate and even live in public life, who's allowed to be on the street and so on and so forth. Some of my threads pull on certain figures because they harp on this issue, on the respectability of dress. So I often will pull these photos to show that they themselves do not actually dress according to these classical notions that they claim they value. Their dress breaks all sorts of like classic, you know, all these notions of what a classic outfit should be. So sometimes it's just to point out the hypocrisy of people who say they think someone looks bad because they're in a hoodie or in shorts or whatever, but they themselves are wearing a suit quite terribly. Mm. So actually, so kind of on that note, so you, you've been called a snob by a number of people online over the past few years. Where do you think the line is between knowing and discussing the specific rules of, again, for example, clothing and becoming quite conservative and reactionary about them? 
I would agree I'm a snob, but I don't think that clothing is any reflection of a person's character, intelligence, values, worth, so on and so forth. So for me, clothing is just a hobby. It's sort of like, I don't know, if someone was really into cars, they might think that certain cars are better than others, but they don't necessarily think that you're a bad person if you drive whatever a car that they don't think is appealing. That's the danger with clothing is that you can do this with anything. People associate good taste in music or whatever food with intelligence. And I, I really don't think that's true. It happens more so with clothing, again, because clothing is so personal. I just take it as a hobby. If someone happens to also enjoy clothing and they want to dress well and have an interest, then to me, that's a fellow hobbyist. I think it's wrong when people start thinking that you can tell someone's intelligence or character or worth based on their clothes, because there are all sorts of people who dress well and are terrible people. And there are lots of people who do not dress particularly well, but they're upstanding people. So, Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. You once said in an interview that you got into tailoring specifically because a woman you fancied had invited you as her plus one to a wedding and you wanted to impress her. Do you see fashion as a primarily personal act or a more of a social one? Like, what do we try to do when we dress ourselves? I'm going a bit deep here, but there's always a tension, isn't there? Like In, in the sense that, for example, yeah. I want to dress in a way that I personally find compelling, but that also appeals to the world around me and there's conflict in there. Yeah, I mean, dress to me is just a tool. I think that's a that's a beautiful question, just so much to explore there, because clearly I think there is an element where you dress for yourself, for your own enjoyment. I've been writing about men's clothing for over 10 years now, and the best email that I ever received was somebody who emailed me and said, you've sparked this hobby in me. And that to me is like the best compliment that I could receive, because it to me, that's like the best part of clothing is when you find that joy. But it is true that it's also a communication tool. It's the way that we broadcast our identity and sense of belonging to the world. It's also the way that we identify ourselves as individuals within a group. So even if you, let's say if you're really into punk music, you might dress punk to 
tell people on the street that you are part of the subculture, but you may dress in certain ways to identify yourself as an individual within that subculture. So I think all of those are legitimate. You know, if someone wants to dress better because they want to, let's say, advance their career or if they want to find love or if they dress purely for themselves just to feel good, I think all of these are legitimate reasons. Before I leave you, there's one more thing I wanted to touch on. You've spoken before about the fact that you essentially got into fashion thanks to Tumblr and forums. Um, so first of all, thanks for being one of the other four people who use Tumblr for fashion instead of <laughs> porn most of the time. But uh, secondly, like, do you think someone could have a similar journey online today? Because the internet has changed so much in the past 15 years. Like, do you reckon it's still possible for it to be a haven for the dedicated weirdos? Wow, what a fantastic question. I could go on and on about that. I am so (laughs) disappointed at how the internet has evolved. 15 years ago, there was this huge online ecosystem of blogs full of enthusiasts who were just posting whatever, you know, it would be street style photography, it would be what I'm wearing today, it would be my love for Alden shoes or whatever it is. People just had these like great hobbyist blogs. And you could fall into forums and blogs just by, you know, you could Google, like, where do I get good shoes? And all of a sudden, you stumble upon this blog network or this forum. And then a year later, you're like a shoe nut, right? And this could happen for any hobby. It could happen for you're really into mustard or like, you know, whatever, cars or 1945, you know, r records. And the thing that bums me out about the internet now is that one, blogs have largely died. The cost of living in the in the US has skyrocketed. So people do not have time to do these hobbyist things anymore. So if they are doing this kind of content creation, it's often through Patreon or Substack, which is partly paywalled, which is understandable. I'm, I'm not criticizing it. I'm just saying, one, partly that's the cost of living. But two, it also affects the kind of content you put out and it's no longer searchable. The other thing is that a lot of the discourse has now migrated to Instagram, TikTok, Discord, and Slack, which are not searchable. All of these like walled gardens that you have to find some way to figure out where they are. And then once you get in there, you might find some community. And then all the knowledge that's generated in there is just like, it just disappears. If something is posted on Discord or TikTok, it's not that you can easily find it through a search. I think that's a huge loss. There there used to be a few communities left on Reddit, which was like the last bastion for this kind of hobbyism. But then Reddit had this huge policy change and then a bunch of subreddits closed down in protest. And I, I saw those communities also disappear overnight. I think that's just has been awful. And and Twitter's full of rancor to the degree that you can even find information on there. It's just full of just arguments. I think there was something very special about the internet 15 years ago where there was this hobbyist community. Although the internet has always been kind of a trolley place, it was less trolley 15 years ago. And it's harder for someone to discover these communities. And on the chance that they do, the market has also bifurcated in such a way that almost all clothing is now either super cheap fast fashion or this incredibly expensive luxury brand. So even if you were to find these communities, people are telling you what to buy and you're looking at $500 sweaters and a $1,000 jacket, or you know, oh, if, if you can't buy that, then buy this like 
$10 acrylic sweater or this oh God, $20 So I literally, yeah, I call that the Instagram game because I feel like I somehow, I think specifically bras for some reason. So I get quite a lot of ads for bras because I'm a woman and I'll click on them occasionally. And the bras are somehow always like literally £250 or absurdly like seven. And I'm like, you can't make a bra for seven pounds. And also I don't have the money to like buy a 250 quid bra. So, yeah, no, I completely agree. There's a really weird thing going on online, especially with advertising and stuff, which is, yeah, either this is something that will catch fire if you just like look at a lamp or stuff that you just can't afford. Yeah, it's it's both harder to acquire this stuff now. It's harder to acquire quality things. It's harder to find other communities. It's hard to find that like intricate knowledge. And I just think it's um, it's a shame because that was such a beautiful moment in the internet where you could buy things based on, in my opinion, a more meaningful measure than, oh, a celebrity wore this thing. You'd buy something because of how it's constructed and all of these details that, you know, you learn about. I think I think it's been an, an awful development. I hope it changes at some point that we switch to more searchable information and more middle ground um, so that people are not stuck between buying luxury or fast fashion. I wonder how much of it as well is the fact that 15 years ago, and I used to read a lot of fashion blogs, which were literally just like random girls dressing themselves. And I wonder if the main difference is not that you can make money from it now in a way that you couldn't at the time. So I think all of us who had blogs 15 years ago were a bit like, we're doing it because it's fun. And also because we know it's not going to lead to anywhere. At most, it may lead to a writing career at some point, right? But that's it. Whereas I think once you've got the possibility of earning money and becoming famous, that just warps absolutely everything, Uh, which is kind of a shame. And obviously, yeah, we we both made it. You know, we're here discussing it today, you know, as part of our paid jobs. But but I do think as a community thing, that's kind of destroyed everything because now it's been tainted by money, like the promise of success, I guess. It was really nice when brands hated influencers because they just dismissed them. There wasn't these like partnership deals. And now... So much the the beautiful thing about the early that early stage is that it's true that a lot of the content was actually not very informed because they were just like enthusiasts who were just saying whatever they thought. But the upside is that it was honest, is that if you said something, that's just what you thought. That you thought that this is the best shoe or this is how things were created. Or if you bought something, you were super critical because you spent your money on it. Now, so many of these companies have figured out that an online ad doesn't work and they have to co-opt an influencer. So they'll give them free things or they'll give them money. And as a, a consumer of information, you now no longer know whether you are consuming information because someone earnestly loves something or if they're being co-opted by a brand. And you certainly get a lot less of the content where someone spent $300 on a shoe and they're not going to pour over it with a microscope because they are you know, they're, they're looking for every flaw. The beautiful moment of that one, that early stage is that there was a time when those quote unquote influencers or those content creators were more honest than the mainstream fashion media, which was already co-opted. Now, many influencers are worse than mainstream fashion media because at least those companies have divisions between editorial and advertising departments. And some of them, some have some kind of ethics and fact-checking. Now you have people who don't fact-check and, you know, the editorial department is the same as the ad department. It's just one person who's just doing a money grab. And quite frankly, there's a lot a lot of their viewers and create their, their audience is cheering them on to, you know, get that bag. 
Yeah, it, it is intensely depressing. But um, I, I don't want to end on a completely negative note. So you got to spend this entire interview preaching to the converted. But let's assume that some of our listeners aren't dedicated followers of fashion. Like what what would be your pitch to them not to necessarily become as obsessed as us, but to maybe start putting more thought into what they wear? I would say that you don't have to get into fashion. But if you do, there is so much joy in putting on something that makes you feel good, that especially if it's something that you can hold on for a long time and it becomes part of part of you. And I think for many people that can often start with a good pair of shoes. So whatever that may mean, that, that could mean buying a pair of sneakers. It could mean buying a pair of uh, leather dress shoes, but buying something that is well-made and that you love and will age well, because if it ages well, then you'll want to wear it for a long time. I think that is often an easy way to get into, you know, you, you buy a nice pair of shoes and eventually you figure out, oh, I have to get a nicer pair of pants. And, you know, hopefully you fall down that rabbit hole like me. And you wear you wear those shoes or you wear the item for a while and you notice how it makes you feel. It's just the question of, for many guys anyway, I think it, it helps to build a foundation of relatively versatile items, like a good pair of jeans, good sweatshirt, a good Navy sport coat, a good pair of gray flannel trousers. Those are things that you can may not be your style in the end, but they are things that you can use as you start to reinvent your wardrobe and they'll, they can be used with many different things so that you're not constantly reinventing the wheel. Mm. Well, that's a really strong pitch, I think. This has been an absolute delight. Derek Guy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive merchandise offers. I'm Marie LeCompte, and you are listening to The Bunker. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Maria Leconte The producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.